Well, good morning, People's Church. Let me try that again. Good morning, People's Church. Aren't you glad for that passage of Scripture? You're going to commit all those verses to memory now, aren't we? But one of those verses will come to play in a little while. Well, it's a joy to be here with you this morning to worship Jesus with you. I'd like to thank the elders for inviting me to come and to share. I bring greetings from the Rock on Campus Canada and the hundreds of students whom we serve. Some of you are familiar, as was mentioned, of our chaplain to Lambton College, Doug Thompson. He has served since 2014, and I want to express personally my thank you for your ongoing support of campus chaplaincy and ministry at Lambton College. How many are not familiar with the Rock on Campus? So I don't have to say anything more about that, right? For those not familiar, because you didn't put your hands up, let me just tell you, it's a ministry of pastoral care, it's a ministry for, obviously, campus ministry, and it's a support, a spiritual support to students on Canadian college campuses. We exist as an extension of the local church. Our goal is to encounter students right where they are, without judgment to engage students in conversations of faith and talk about how faith, and particularly faith in Jesus, makes a difference in everyday living. And we point students to Jesus. We point students to Jesus. And we point them to the local church where their faith can be nurtured, where they can find a place to serve, and where the word of God can make an impact on their lives. Our desire is to create this ripple impact in the lives of students, starting first with the student, then with his or her family, then their church, their community, their business as they graduate, the industry that they serve in, their city, their province, and their country. Now, how did I get into this? Well, I was first appointed as a chaplain to Fanshawe College in 1995. At that time, there were only a handful of evangelical chaplains in the country, and very few on college and university campuses. Today I'm happy to report that there are dozens and dozens of campus pastors and chaplains and ministers positioned to reach out to the university and college campus, representing some 2.1 million students across the country. And recognizing our need to grow the impact, The Rock on Campus was created as a charity in 2006, and today we are busy building chaplaincy and campus ministry across the 150 campuses in Canada. I've just recently returned from Alberta where we're building some relationships there to plant at the 15 colleges there. I've traveled through much of southwestern Ontario through to the eastern province, part of the province. I'm going up to North Bay, uh, hopefully soon. And we're working with the French leaders, church leaders, to develop strategy for the 48 campuses in Quebec that have no gospel presence. So before going any further, allow me to say a short word. Father, thank you for this time we have to share and to uh, look into your word. I pray that the words of my, my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. And I ask this in Jesus' name. You and I are living in an exciting post-COVID period in our country. You may not know this, but Canada has the highest number of high, uh, sorry, graduates from university in the whole world. We have more university graduates in the whole world. Students leave high school to broaden their learning, to find their place in the world, and education is paramount. So, how many parents here hope to send their kids to college or university? Good. How many have plans 
to put their, or how many have had students go to college or university? You've had them, right? How many of you are broke? Um, <laughs> education is so important, and our post-secondary educational institutions are recruiting at an all-time high. They just want your student, your child to be a student there. And as faith communities, we pray for our children, we hope for their success, and for that success to translate into a Jesus impact in our homes, in our families, in our churches, in our communities. Today, as we see society and culture changing so rapidly, and in a way that should be alarming to the Christ follower, we are facing challenges like never before. The Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, some of you may know that agency, but they've been tracking your students for quite some time. And the ESC tells us that we are watching high school grads leave the church in the highest numbers ever as they transition to the post-secondary world. It's believed that between seven and nine out of 10 students are leaving the faith of their parents within the first one to two years of college and university. This stat should give us pause. High school youth in our churches have some of the most remarkable youth ministries around. Many of our grads from the local church are remarkable. They're outstanding. They, they desire to grow their faith. They want to reach out to their classmates with the gospel. They're eager to find God's place for them in business, government, and industry. Sadly, however, many, many grads who grew up in the church are succumbing to the spiritual war that is being waged every year on our campuses. There's a battle for their minds, there's a battle for their bodies, there's a battle for their souls. It might be the many isms that exist in classrooms like socialism, narcissism, plain me-ism, or the body attacks of drugs, alcohol, open sexuality, and since 2015, the rapid rise of gender identity dysphoria or the insidious spiritual attacks of other faith groups, open anti-Christianity, atheism, agnosticism, just outright hostility to biblical Christianity. Today's student is in the open trenches of the battle that the enemy of our souls wishes to win. And he wants to overturn the Judeo-Christian heritage that you and our ancestors built many of him whom did so in the shadow of a Christianity that was birthed in churches on four provinces at Confederation in 1867, when God was invited to have dominion from sea to sea to sea. How many were born before 1970? Just a few of you. The culture that we grew up in no longer exists. Our society and culture seems intent on stamping out the conservative Christian from holding office, from running a private business, from speaking out on social issues. It would be fair to observe that the culture that you and I live in today can be neatly summed up by the phrase, post-Christian church. And while I could offer you all kinds of stats and, re and realities that exist in Canada today, I could attempt to convince you why you should continue to support campus ministry I think there's another way. You see, it would be easy to suggest that the world is against us and against a church and that we should just watch what is happening and wait upon God for a mighty move of the Spirit. Folks, I've been praying for revival in this country since 1996. There's nothing I would love more than to see God move on the campus 
to confront the enemy and to transform student and staff lives. And so while I wait upon the Lord to move in this country, I'd like to draw us to some scripture and unwrap what the enemy is doing and consider how we might stay engaged in the battles we are fighting in this culture and to invite the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives with strategies to win hearts to Jesus and sustain and encourage students. So if you'll permit me, I truly hope to spark some of you to consider, is God leading you? Is God sending you, starting tomorrow, into the battlefield, with a a renewed sense of purpose, with renewed goals, goals to reach your circles of influence, or perhaps even call you to the campus with me. Some of you may recall the story of Lindsay Shepard at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo. In 2017, while she's clearly not a believer at that time, Lindsay battled against a university administration of what became a battle for our rights. It demonstrated that the challenge that exists on our campuses today is far from over, it's getting worse. And it's not just about our freedom of speech rights no longer being honored, but Ms. Shepard noted specifically that the most challenged and discriminated student on campus today is a conservative Christian, and she isn't far off. We have reports of students prohibited from praying silently in public campus clubs and chaplains being barred from campuses, students being handed poor and failing grades because they self-identify as Christian, swarming and attacking students and residents, labeling graffiti on residence doors, meaning room reservations being canceled. The list is actually quite large. And as campus pastors, we meet. We meet virtually, we meet together, we, we pray for strategy, We press on with creative methods to shepherd students for the Lord has called us and he has sent us to proclaim Jesus on campus. This morning we are going to see the same kind of thing happening to Daniel and his friends. You can go to the book of Daniel now. We're going to see a God in his sovereignty sending Daniel to the hostile city of Babylon to a land that was antagonistic to the things of God to live as exiles among them for the purpose of making God's name known among the nations. Now let me just provide a brief picture of the book of Daniel. First of all, Daniel, <coughs> pardon me, Daniel identifies himself as the author of this book. Jesus in Matthew 24 references Daniel as the author. And so we're going to move forward understanding that it was Daniel and Daniel's eyes that we're reading about this morning. And if there's one big idea, one theme that's overarching this entire book, it's about the sovereignty of God. The book of Daniel shows us that God is sovereign over international powers. He is sovereign over even the small details of life. He is sovereign over history, and he is sovereign concerning the future. And what I hope to encourage you with this morning is this truth, that the sovereign, all-powerful God in his grace uses his sovereign power to maintain his promises forever. I pray this truth gives us courage and hope in our distress and perseverance to press on in this land that we live in, which is becoming increasingly antagonistic to the gospel of Jesus. Let's look at Daniel. 
The book begins with disaster. Let's begin. We're verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put in the treasure house of his God. This is disaster for the people of Judah. God allows Nebuchadnezzar to come in and conquer Judah. And you're like, what? Why would God allow that? Now, folks, you probably know this because you're good students of the Scripture, but just as a reminder, God had time and time again warned Israel that if they continued in their disobedience, stuff is going to happen. And that's exactly what they do. They continue in disobedience, so God simply allows to happen what he said was a consequence of their action. And as they do so, they take the vessels of God as trophies of war, they bring them into Babylon and place them into the house of the pagan god, probably Marduk, who was the king chief, the king god of the Babylonians. It's kind of like Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying, hey, my god's better than your god. It's quite interesting, though, to think. And here's, here's what you think about. God allowed this to happen. He knew how it would look when he gave all these vessels over to Babylon. Pagans would be singing, praise Marduk, from whom all blessings flow. But we see in our God, time and time again, a sovereignty. As he shows here that he is a God who wills to suffer suffer shame if it might awaken his people to their danger. Well, in addition to the vessels that were brought to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar also issues another command. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect. Handsome. Showing aptitude for every kind of learning. Well-informed quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonian. So in addition to the vessels, a man named Ashpenaz is given the task of deporting family members of the king's court to Babylon. He is given the task of stripping Judah of its best and its brightest young people in order to benefit Babylon by adding these gifted individuals to his own ranks. And how would they do it? What method would they use to make good little Babylonians of the exiled Israelites? They would indoctrinate them in Babylonian ways and culture. The University of Babylon would give them a first-class secular education in Babylonian language, philosophy, literature, science, history, and astrology. Religion, without a doubt, would have been part of that curriculum as well. The, myth, the, myth, the mythologies of Babylon, the greatness of Marduk, the importance of the many deities that dominated the ancient Near Eastern world. Dream interpretation, omen reading would most certainly have been required courses. Verse 5 says, The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were going to enter the king's service. They were going to be forced to adapt 
themselves to adopt a lifestyle. Have you heard that phrase recently? Lifestyle. To adopt the lifestyle of a Babylonian and to eat and drink like a Babylonian. And here's the goal. To entice them with the delicacies, the privileges of their new life, so they would eventually be won over to the dark side. And the program at Babylon U, we find, was, it, was, it was three years. And in the end, they would have to stand before the king and take the final exam to see if they made the cut. We also find out four names of those Ashpenaz chose. Now certainly there would have been more, but the text only gives us these four. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. If you're having trouble with that, young people, my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. Now, scholars believe that these guys were about 16 years of age. All four were from the tribe of Judah, and all four had names that honored their God. Daniel translates, God is my judge. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Mishael means who is like God. Azariah means the Lord helps. And their names were changed. It would have been a really big deal. You see, your name in the ancient world became your identity. And their names are changed instead to honor the Babylonian gods. Belshazzar meant may Baal protect his life or the king's life. Shadrach meant the command of Aku, who was the god of the moon. Meshach meant who is like Aku. Abednego means a servant of Nego, the god of wisdom. Why change their names? To give them a new identity, to reorient them away from Yahweh and toward the pagan gods of their new home. I want you to stop for just a moment and imagine the trauma that these four guys would have faced. So they left home. They were uprooted from home. They were uprooted from their friends. They were transported away to a strange land among strange people who speak a strange language, who who practice strange customs, worship strange gods, who gave them strange names. They were strangers in a strange land. And these boys quite possibly had never been away from home before. Now in numerous translations, it's also noted in the text that they were given over to the chief of the eunuchs. It was a common custom to castrate young men who would serve in the king's court. It was their way of trying to protect against their captives having an adulterous relationship with a member of the king's harem. And the text doesn't straight up tell us that this happened for certain. But it's very possible with this mention here that Daniel and his friends were made eunuchs, adding the loss of sexual identity and a future family to the trauma that they were facing. These young men would have been distraught. They would have been scared. They would have been devastated as they, brought, they were brought out of the place that was familiar to them into a strange, new, antagonistic to the God they knew place. 
Now, I'm sure as we've been going through these seven verses, at least I hope, you've been connecting the dots, the dots to 2023. There's many connections to the world we face today. Let's spend a few moments bridging the contexts here. What are we seeing? Well, we're seeing, number one, that God may send you to a difficult land for the spread of his name among the nations. We see that in verses 1 to 4. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were uprooted from their home and were replanted on the harsh, wicked soil of Babylon. Did you notice who did this? It was Yahweh's doing. It was God's doing. It was his plan for this to happen. And unknown to the Babylonians, they are doing merely what the Lord is allowing them to do. Notice verse 2, that the Lord delivered them over. Again, who's delivering them? The Lord. The Lord is in complete control over this. He is sovereign over all that is happening. And also unknown to the Babylonians, the Lord is working through this conquest. One commentary says this is a divine invasion of divine territory. In the words of Augustine, the city of man is being invaded by the city of God. Babylon the land of idols, false gods, the city that opposes God is now being infiltrated by the people of God. And we are seeing here God sovereignly at work among the people he scatters so that the nations will have a witness living among them of the one true living God. And we see the same thing happening later in the book of Acts. As a church is scattered throughout the Roman world making disciples, planting churches throughout the region. Personal question. Stop and ask yourself, why are you here in Wyoming, Ontario? Why has God sent you to this region? I have ministry contacts from Ethiopia. Can you believe going to Ethiopia for missions work? And I hear story after story how students at university there are hearing the gospel and they're coming to faith in droves. It's refreshing to hear the people who become hungry for Jesus and turn to Jesus. We live here in a land where there seems to be little hunger for the things of God. And I don't want to suggest any simple answer as to why that is, but I simply acknowledge that we are living on hard ground. When I speak with people about Jesus, even recently they tell me, despite the COVID period we've gone through, they are content, they feel a sense of happiness without Jesus. And it would be easy to simply move on to easier territory, except for the conviction that I need to have, and each one of us need to have, that God has sent you and me here for a purpose. No matter how hard life is, He has sent us here so that his glory and his fame and his love and his mercy would be known right here in this region. Look at Daniel and his friends. These four guys, it wasn't easy for them at all. They uprooted from everything they knew, uprooted from the land that they knew, from their friendships, their family, brought as captives to a strange, godless land like the university, like the college. And it won't be easy for us. Another commentary of Daniel says, sometimes God may allow hardships to reach us 
because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. Wherever you are, understand this. God in his sovereignty he has sent you there for his mercy to reach beyond you. You and I need to be convinced to live faithfully for the spread of his name and his mercy in the midst of a land that is increasingly antagonistic to the gospel. So number one, God may send us. Number two, we must be prepared for the challenges we'll face in cultures, in cultures antagonistic to the gospel that might lead us away from the Lord. Let me say that again. We must be prepared for the fact that we could be sent to a place that is antagonistic to the gospel and it's possible that going there might lead us away. Friends, we can't be naive and not expect opposition. We see these three challenges that Daniel and his friends were faced with and so here's the first, isolation. The first step in making the Babylonians Making Babylonians out of these Hebrew teenagers was isolation from their homeland. Isolation from their family. Isolation from their friends. And by doing this, they knew that these boys would be more susceptible to buying into new ideas in order to lead them astray from the faith of their God and to adopt a Babylonian worldview. And we are naive if we don't think that this is the same strategy used by the evil one today. However, in our case, it's often not forced. It's often voluntary. Naively and sometimes willingly, parents send their children off to secular colleges and universities as lambs prepared for the slaughter. Isolated from church family and fellow believers, many students are seduced by the intellectual elites and more often than not walk away from Jesus. The evil one knows what he's doing. Now this doesn't mean that our children should never go off to secular college or university. That's not what I'm saying here this morning. However, it doesn't mean that we may fail to appreciate the danger and the deception of false ideas if we don't adequately prepare our young people for what they will face. And then when they're there, we need to help them get through it. We need to support them while they're in the middle of it. Well, the second thing the second challenge is indoctrination. Verse 4 tells us that these four young men were among the best of the best in Judah. They were good-looking, without physical defect. They were handsome. They were smart, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. They were blessed with interpersonal skills and leadership, qualified to serve in the king's palace. And Babylon saw them, these four smart, good-looking, blessed young men, as the ideal candidates to be indoctrinated into the Babylonian worldview. We're fooling ourselves if we don't think the evil one won't do the same thing today. To do what he can to get us to buy into a secular humanist worldview, a worldview that is prevalent in this country. And so we must be prepared to guard ourselves and to raise our young people from this. It's one of the many reasons that the Rock on Campus is such a vital ministry today. You see, in addition to shepherding and pastoral care, our campus chaplains and pastors are also poised to point out where we have subtly bought into a worldview that simply isn't biblical. Thirdly, assimilation. Everything done to these four young men was done in order to separate these guys from their Jewish roots. Babylon doesn't want them remembering where they came from. The idea was to make the Israelites so taken up 
so consumed, so aware of the things of Babylon that they would soon forget about their homeland and their own God. And this is a story from hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but the pattern is still the same. The enemy's plan today is no different for Christians. Satan loves it when Christians are just like the world. He loves it when we act, when we think, when we behave, when we talk no differently than those ungodly people who desperately need Christ but are unaware. And we must guard against that. We must be aware of the devil's schemes. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, do not be unaware of the devil's schemes in order that Satan doesn't outwit us. One commentary said, Christians who work or study in an environment that is antagonistic to Christianity should take special care to avoid uncritical assimilation into the surrounding culture. The the reality is we live in a land with a culture that is increasingly secular. We're in the midst of a cultural change here in Canada, and there's no real denying that. And because of this cultural change, it's going to require us to live differently, to be on guard, to prepare, to remain faithful, to trust that God is sovereign and powerful and knows what he is doing even when I don't understand. Think about these young men and what they went through. With the trauma and turmoil and transition these young men experienced, it would be easy to make excuses for Daniel. I mean, with all the pressure they've been under at such a young age, a compromise here and there wouldn't be that bad, would it? We might even concede, like sometimes we do today, If we're going to survive in the culture, don't we have to go with the flow a little bit? Don't we have to give in a little bit? I mean, we've got to compromise on beliefs a little bit here and a little bit there, don't we? Is that what Daniel and his friends do? I'm not going to tell you. You've got to go home and read the rest of it. But of course it's not. And I want to encourage you to read the rest of the story of Daniel this afternoon to rediscover how Daniel and his three cohorts responded to their new surroundings. Now allow me to close. Close our time this morning asking you some personal questions. Now I'm not going to get you to memorize all the Chronicles reading that we had today, but I want you to think about this obscure verse that was in the middle of it. It's an appropriate verse to 2023 and the realities that we are facing. You see, as the executive director for a charity, I travel and I speak across this country with people, and I hear many stories, stories of division, stories of avoidance, stories detailing withdrawing from the world. But not for the follower of Jesus. These are not options. In fact, I firmly believe the importance of seeing what's happening understanding what's happening, knowing how to respond to what's happening in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32. It reads, From Issachar, the men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. The men of Issachar were alert. They knew what was transpiring in their country. They had a pulse for the happenings and the realities of their time and the cultures that they were moving into. They gave critical thought and strategized about the next steps 
of Israel, their country. And the Rock on Campus exists to be an extension of the local church, to serve the local church. And as an ongoing component of ministry to parents and young adults and youth, we attempt to stay aware of what's happening in our culture, what's happening in our homes and our schools. You see, critical to the ministry of encouragement that is captured in our ministry are the words of Jesus. Jesus tells us multiple times, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. Earlier I asked you all a question. Why are you here in Wyoming? Another question, what is your purpose for being here in the Sarnia region? And in the face of the changing culture we live in today, let me ask those questions again. Why are you here? What is your purpose? And as you seek the Lord, as you pour your life into Scripture to learn and to grow, to hear the voice of the shepherd, what is the shepherd saying to you as you navigate through enemy lines? Well, I'd like to give you some time to consider these questions. And so we'll pause for silence. We'll take time to hear from the Lord, and then I will pray. And we'll take some time this morning to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. And if you have a pen and paper, and if and when you hear from the Lord, let me encourage you to write down what the shepherd is saying. And to pray about what you have written. And to test what you have written against God's word. And to seek out one or two persons you respect as leaders in your assembly. And to trust God for how he will help you navigate through enemy lines. Let's bow our heads. Father God, Abba, Father, your kindness and your goodness to us is overwhelming. I'm so grateful that your mercies are new every morning. I'm so grateful, God, that you have sent your Son to take our place for the punishment that was due, the punishment we deserved. I'm so thankful for the mercy of God, for how you took my life as a university student, and you rescued me, and you delivered me, and you grafted me in to the family of God. And I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit who you've given me and you've given us as someone who will be our counselor, someone who will remind us of the things Jesus said, someone who will walk with us, who will be incarnational in all that we do. And Lord, there's no question in our minds, and obviously it's, you're not caught off guard, you're not caught by surprise over how the world we live in not only doesn't think about you, it doesn't want you. But Lord, you brought us into this place, into this region, into this family of faith so we can grow, so we can mature, so we can discover the eternal life of knowing you and knowing your son. But you've also given us a command to go into the nations, make disciples, to teach them the things that Jesus said. And so Lord, as we are navigating through the world we live in, 
the politics we see, the things that we might even talk about, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would sharpen our eyes, sharpen our hearts, sharpen our minds, and that, God, we might uh, hear from you as you lead us into where to go next, what to do next, and discover renewed purpose and vision for how we might impact our communities for the sake of the gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.